The true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. Albert Einstein. When we recall the greatest intellects of history and their contributions to humanity, no list would be complete without the great Albert Einstein. We often think of him as discovering relativity or working on the atomic bomb. But in addition to physics and math, the oft-quotable Dr. Einstein was fascinated with the nature and utilization of knowledge. It was such a passion of his that he frequently rebelled against his schoolmasters for policies and techniques he believed killed creativity and promoted conformity. One teacher even told young Albert he would never amount to anything, and we all know that take didn't age well. On today's episode, Pediatric occupational therapist Michaela Stupps talks to us about the importance of creativity and the need to actively promote creativity in children and in the workplace. It's time to put those doorward thinking caps on. Let's get started. Welcome back, thinkers. I'm your host, Nate LeBlanc, and today we're recording in the snowy city of fountains, Kansas City, Missouri. As always, we're searching for better ways to live and better ways to love, examining what life has to offer in light of the untamable human spirit. So I'm extremely excited about today's episode. It's been in development since the day of our first recording over four months ago, and that's before the first episode even aired last October. It's going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. Our team has the week off of podcast duty because today is Doorward Thinking's first one-on-one interview. Here with me today is Michaela Stops. Michaela is an occupational therapist based in Kansas City and owner of Creative Occupational Therapy Solutions, LLC, working as an independent contractor in the area of pediatrics. She's extremely passionate about providing family-centered care in natural environments to reach children's goals. She's also worked to provide education to community swim programs on how to create more inclusive educational opportunities and instructional strategies for children with autism spectrum disorder through a grant from Autism Speaks. Michaela enjoys giving guest lectures with her alma mater, the University of Missouri's Occupational Therapy Program, and encouraging students to start their own business and expressing the benefits of such a model. So Michaela, really happy to be with you here today. I'm glad we were able to make this work. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, no, thank you for hosting us. Uh, Had to switch some things up last minute and take a train over here, but I'm happy that we're making it all work and really excited for the conversation that we're going to have. So for our listeners who might be unfamiliar, what is occupational therapy? So we always joke that occupational therapy is the career you don't know about unless you need it. Um, But I actually didn't become an occupational therapist because I had seen occupational therapy in action. I had been searching in high school for what degree would be a good fit for me, what would be the best use of my talents, and I was feeling really stuck. This is probably junior year of high school. I had a lot of room before I needed to really know what I had to do, Um, but I felt like I needed a path because I'm someone who likes to have a path. Um, And I went to a lecture at Mizzou actually And they were doing their black and gold days where they talk about different careers and what you can be. And the career of occupational therapy came up. And in my head, I kept thinking, I need a career where I can help others. That's what I wanted. But I wasn't sure I wanted to do nursing. 
medicine maybe wasn't the best fit for me. So I was feeling pretty stuck, but I liked health professions. And so when they said occupational therapy, in their PowerPoint, how they described it was the perfect career for someone who enjoys helping others. And so I thought, well, gosh, I found it. That's exactly what I want to do. And so after that, I did some really great shadowing, volunteered with some occupational therapy-based summer camps. And every experience I had with the people I was working with really affirmed that this was a career that based its work on people's goals and their activities that were important to them were the therapeutic media. And it was very goal-based and client-centered. And I think that was the most holistic approach to healthcare that I had seen. And that was really what I wanted. And I mean, from what I understand, a lot of people see it as an overlap with something like physical therapy. Mm -hmm. And does that tend to cause a little bit of confusion? I do get called a physical therapist a lot. Um, and physical therapy is also, you know, it's another therapy. So we do a lot of some would say similar things because our goal is to get the client back to being able to do what they were doing prior to injury or illness, or in a lot of cases with children, we're helping them to get to the place where they can do everything they need or want to do. And physical therapy, sometimes we'll look at that at a structure-based level, making sure that muscles are working how they should, that you're able to move in a full range of motion, and how can we strengthen or help you increase flexibility to reach those goals. And occupational therapy looks at what you want to do, your occupations, and uses that as the media to reach your goals. And so it's more of a task-based, activity-based focus. So for example, if someone has had a stroke and they need to get back to being able to cook, to drive, to take care of themselves, occupational therapists would really practice getting dressed, bathing, even driving. And a physical therapist would help to build up those structures so that that person felt confident in their physical ability to complete them. So those two really can work hand in hand. It's not one or the other. I think they're a great complement to each other. And we often work in co-treats or working with that therapist at the same time with a client. So you stuck with it and went through undergrad the whole time knowing that that was what you wanted to do. Um, what was the education like after getting your undergraduate degree in order to work as an occupational therapist? For the University of Missouri's occupational therapy program, it's an undergraduate degree, so usually a four-year degree, plus a two-year master's. In that two years, you do 72 credit hours, so it's considered pretty intense. In that time, we go to school in the summers, fall and spring semesters, um, and we get a lot of great experiential learning in during that time so that when we go into the field, we feel prepared and ready to go. And that learning takes place in multiple places. I understand that you have to go out into the community and do some field work hours. Yes. So Mizzou had a great mix of learning with textbooks, seeing examples from the professors, and we had in-house clinics as well. So we got to see learning in those clinics and have actual patients or students in the clinics and learn by applying our education to those case studies, essentially. We also had great chances to go out in the community and do practice even before field work in preschools, pools. We did some swim education. Um, and then we reached our field works where we do week-long and three-month-long 
fieldwork education experiences in different settings. That kind of gives us a good variety of backgrounds so that when we graduate, we're kind of considered a jack of all trades as far as occupational therapy goes. And so that's the normal program, but I understand that you also had to contend with everything that was going on and all the changes due to COVID. What was that like? That was an adventure. Um, My first rotation went pretty smoothly. It was in the spring of 2020. And for that rotation, COVID was kind of a thought. It was an idea. We thought, oh, that's going to be something that maybe the East Coast has to deal with, but it's not going to make it to the Midwest. not going to affect. However, by my second rotation, we'd come to that new reality of things were changing. It was going to be a concern. And I was in the hospital setting for that rotation, but I wasn't supposed to be. I was originally going to have a pediatric rotation for my second three-month field work. But with COVID, um, that placement actually canceled because their kiddos were not coming into the clinic because it was a risk for health. Um, And they just weren't sure about staffing if they were going to be able to have a therapist who could be there with me um, and educate me. And so the first setting I was at, Menorah Medical Center, was able to keep me for a second rotation and ended up being a great experience. I got to see more settings in the hospital. And I feel like it gave me a sense if I can do anything, if I can do a hospital during the start of a pandemic. Um, I kind of the joke in the hospital was that we were given umbrellas and asked to hold the door open during a tornado because we felt a little underprepared and at risk. But we also felt brave and capable um, and stronger as a team after that experience. Once you finish your field work, what happens then? So the first thing I did was took a break. Sounds like it was much needed. (laughs) It was, especially after the pandemic um, in the hospital. And the pandemic is ongoing, of course. But I took time to visit and spend um, some much-needed rest time with family. Um, But after that, I started studying for my board exams, which are uh, what occupational therapists do after they finish their educational programs. We take a board exam to make sure that we have all the knowledge we need to be competent providers. It's kind of a a fact check for us, make sure that we know what we're doing so that our clients can be assured that we're going to do the best job we can. After that, we start applying for our licensure. So each state has a different license. So I applied for both Missouri and Kansas since I'm in Kansas City and tend to see clients in both areas. And then we start our job search. And this is what initially made me interested in having a conversation with you on the show those four months ago when we had our uh, first meeting was that you decided not to hop in into a clinic or an established setting. You decided to start your own practice. That sounds remarkably brave considering the circumstances and everything that was going on in the community at that time. What inspired you to do that? I think it was a risky move even in my head, but the benefits of that risk outweighed the risk itself. It was an interesting time to be searching for a job because a lot of jobs out there were not looking to hire new practitioners because they weren't getting a lot of clients in with the pandemic. With the rising number of cases, there was a lot of people who were afraid to bring their children into a clinic setting and they were kind of holding up in our houses, kind of like everyone was at that time. And so a lot of practices were either letting people go, letting staff go, or they were trying to stick with the numbers they had. So the couple of jobs that I did look for um, and apply to 
just really weren't fitting my needs. And I think a lot of even really quality centers in the area were just not quite what I was looking for. They tended to have requirements for practitioners that I questioned, uh, such as trainings on practices and therapeutic methods that I know have a lower amount of evidence behind them and that are shown to have maybe not a beneficial impact on children. And so I really didn't want to go into a practice where I was required to have training and to put into practice methods that weren't evidence-based. And unfortunately, that's fairly common right now in practice, and it's something we're really working on as a profession. Why do clinical settings require trainings like that if there isn't the evidence-based benefit? That is the question, isn't it? I always wonder that as well, and I think a lot of it is education. There's a lot of people who are going to take an easy method at face value. Wow, you do this certain three-step method, and this child is cured. They're going to be so much better for it. And we think, oh, what a nice, easy thing to have a systematic process to follow. How nice that I can train my employees on that. We can all follow this method. And unfortunately, we find in practice that if we use a cookie cutter mold, we're not going to see that long-term benefits. We're not going to see um, a child make progress because we're not looking at their individual needs and applying their occupations, which is what our profession was built on. But a lot of practitioners aren't necessarily looking at the evidence. And maybe there is evidence, but it's not quality evidence. So we have to really use our lens and look at it and go, who funded this? How many people were in the study? And I think that's some things that we're, we're not quite looking at as hard as we should, or that maybe we just need more research done on it. But we need that research before we put it into mass practice. I was seeing a lot of this with those different places that I was looking at for working, and I interviewed with some of them. But after talking with them, I was still feeling like I hadn't found the right place for me. So a professor of mine actually emailed out an opportunity to our class, and she said, I don't know if any of you have heard of private practice or are interested in it, but there's a couple of great private practices in Kansas City, Missouri, and they're looking for independent contractors who have their business to kind of work with them. And I thought, well, gosh, I know nothing about private practice. I know nothing about owning a business, but I'm going to send an email out. I'm going to contact them and see what comes of that. It ended up being probably one of the best things I've ever done. Uh, I reached out to them and they immediately responded with an email and I talked with them on Zoom and it was an automatic, it was a great clicking fit. <laughs> what was different about your interaction with this group versus what you were getting out on your interview search? So I remember in one interview, I, I'm a person that likes to ask questions and see, is this a good fit for me? Turn the table a little bit in an interview. I'm and, all for that. <laughs> and so I was asking about opportunities for growth, opportunities for development of new programs. And they were very reluctant. They were like, oh, you're a new grad. I don't know if you can do that. You're going to need a lot of training. We have systems in place. Someone with more experience might do that. You could mention your idea to them. And Matt and Keenan, who are the owners of the two private practices, New Balloon and Speech and Language Solutions that I contract with, I mentioned these ideas and they're like, that's great. We love that. That is an amazing thing to do. You know, we want to support those opportunities. Anything you have as an idea, you can do it and let us know how we can support you. And that was such a different response 
they assumed capability for me. They said, we're sure you can do it. And if you feel unsure, we're here for you. And I think that is such a great way to support growth in your employees. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I mean, you're coming from a background of the most up-to-date studies and the newest technologies, and you're learning all of these things. It stands to reason, really, that anything that you come up with from a, a new perspective and a new lens could develop the field in ways that are innovative and not stuck in some of the older methods. Exactly. As uh, students graduating, our instructors made sure that we were really well aware of the fact that we have the most current and up-to-date evidence within us, and so that we are really a true benefit to companies that we are going out for. Because we have, like you said, all of that fresh education. We have been a part of maybe even understanding current evidence through research in our program. And so we have a lot to add. And so I was going into this with these big, you know, ready to go smile on my face. Let's do this. I am ready to go. I have all this education and evidence to apply. And I felt a little shot down at some of these places because they, and it's very true that new grads do need some hands-on learning time. But I think that we also, at the same time, have a lot to contribute. Sounds to me like what you're looking for is a team atmosphere, the point where you have people who are experienced and who understand what it takes to put forth a new program and initiative, but you also need the idea spark. And by working together, you can cover all your bases and put together some really great programs that actually help and take into account the needs of the members of your community. I exactly. think it's remarkable. That's exactly it. So how long has it been since you've decided to start your own business and do this independent contracting work? Let's see. I started in the September after I graduated. So that would be September 2020. So it's been just over about a year and a half. And it's been awesome. I would say the first couple months is a learning curve. And I think any new occupational therapist would say that. But I had a few extra things I was learning, such as business documents, how to file paperwork with the state, how to find an accountant, <laughs> which was an important step. And so it's been just a blast, though, to see my caseload grow, to add new families to the people I'm working with. It's been really a great learning experience for me. Did you ever think that you would have your own business and your own practice? I would say it was more like a dream than I thought that it would actually happen. I thought, oh, it would be so cool if I could have a business. But no, that'll never happen. <laughs> and then the opportunity came up and I was like, let's do it. And then my family all laughed because I, I had kind of said, oh, yeah, that won't never happen. Um, and then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm starting a business. <laughs> I think I shocked him a little bit. It's a lot different than selling Girl Scout cookies when you're younger, right? Yes, <laughs> it has a few more steps in there. So that laid a good foundation. But you didn't have to do it all alone. You had help along the way, right? I did. Um, I had the two people that I contract with, Matt and Keenan. They were big helps in kind of helping me navigate paperwork, requirements that I needed to meet. And my family was a great support system. 
there was a good amount of Googling and YouTube video watching with a lot of the paperwork that I filled out. Um, and then there was some times where I knocked my head on the table and thought, gosh, I should have got a law degree before I started this. <laughs> but it was nothing that was too hard for me to accomplish once I used my resources. Once you got over those specific challenges of the paperwork and everything like that, when did it really start to feel like you were doing the actual work you set out to do as an occupational therapist and were living out your dream of helping others? The first day I had a client, day one, it was such an amazing feeling to actually be the practitioner that I'd always hoped that I could be without any restraints. I was getting to invent who I wanted to be as a practitioner day one. And it was an amazing experience because a lot of times when you start day one out at a practice, you are educated in the systems of that practice. You're educated in what assessments you're going to use, what the typical protocol is when you're working with certain children with certain diagnoses. And I was inventing all of that from scratch. Maybe not reinventing the wheel completely, but I was getting to see it in a new way in my own life of how I wanted to interact with the kids, how I wanted to spend time building a relationship. And getting to do that was my dream. And that was day one. So how has the emphasis on building this relationship with the children and their families helped you? Because you are working with children who are on the autism spectrum, who have different developmental and learning disabilities. So you're not just coming in to do a couple short sessions and these are issues with a real need for long-term effort. Yeah, I think it's really important to build that relationship and being an independent contractor and working in private practice, that is something that is really unique about that setting is that we have such flexibility about getting to know these children in all of their different environments. In a clinic, you often have to see these kids in the clinic, but I have the flexibility to go to that family's home for that first session, get to know that kiddo in that family in their natural environment, which gives me a lot of information to work with too. I also can see them at a playground if that's a more comfortable setting. I can see how they play in a real playground setting instead of watching them in a clinic by themselves in a strange environment. It also really translates to like time I can spend with those children building rapport. In a clinic setting, it's often fast paced and it's very insurance driven. We have so many sessions that you're allowed to be at a clinic. So we have to maximize that time and you're gonna to wanna to start working as soon as possible. For me, sometimes I can spend years with these families. And so I have time to spend some sessions, yes, being therapeutic and yes, using interventions, but really taking time to get to know that child and what their favorite things are and using those as the basis of our intervention and to really display and learn communication. I had an interesting discussion with my friends recently about um, listening for different ways of communication. A lot of my children that I work with are not exactly what we consider a traditional communicator. They communicate in a lot of ways, but maybe it isn't with words. And so one of the children I was working with is a very good little artist. He does lots of pictures of lots of colors and abstract patterns with lines that go up and down and circles that go around. And a lot of people look at that and go, wow, you know, that's nice colors. 
but I watched him and after watching him I realized that he was drawing the colors of the outfits that I was wearing and then he could tell me things. One day he drew the lines of my outfit colors and next to him he put his color for the outfit that he was wearing to let me know that he felt comfortable near me, that he was okay with being with me, he was excited to see me. And when I talked about that with him and I described that to him, he was very excited. He seemed happy that I understood that and that furthered our relationship because I took time to listen. And I have other kids like that too, one with uh, likes beads, to bang beads on the wall. And instead of coming in and being like, all right, you know, you got to stop banging those beads on the wall, we're doing therapy. I came over and I started banging beads on the wall and I watched how he was doing it and I imitated it and I listened to the beads and how they clanged. And it was very amazing to see how his face lit up and how he thought, wow, you know, this person's listening, they're seeing me. And I think that's important. And he maybe wouldn't have felt as comfortable doing that in a different setting than his natural environment. That's very profound that you bring that up. Um, my father's a high school teacher and he had the opportunity to peer into the home environment when he was doing lessons online and kind of see what these kids were having to deal with and and go through and he mentioned that for him he was able to reach new kids in a different way with that game perspective he gets to see his high school kids 90 minutes a day every other day and so he does get to build up a lot of time with that but sounds like that would be even tougher to do in a clinic with such a fast-paced environment. doesn't seem like a child would ever be truly seen the way that they need to be seen in order to be helped. Yeah, I think that is a big concern. And I know a lot of clinics do a good job of trying to do home sessions as well and really gaining that perspective. But I, I think there's something to be said of natural environment, whether that's going into a school if you're working on school skills going to a house to work on those home environment skills, getting dressed, brushing teeth, that might look very different in a clinic than it would at home, especially for a child whose day might be built a lot on routine, um, going to a playground to work on play skills, because then you get to see how they interact with the other children on the playground, how they're playing with their siblings, because that's a big relationship to work. I think that's a really a really cool thing that we can work on as a profession is increasing that time in natural environments. You bring up an interesting point right now about parents and families that I wanted to touch on. So when I was doing a little bit of research before, I saw that, this is from Autism Speaks, it said that the average cost for families that have a child with autism is about an extra $60,000 a year. Wow. And in addition to that, a lot of times parents are spending time exclusively with that child because of all of the difficulties that that presents. Do you see any benefits to parents' quality of life to your approach versus a more traditional clinical approach? I think there's a couple of different benefits that we see. One is that travel time. A lot of parents, in order to get their child into a clinic, have to take time off of work and take that child at a certain appointment time, and maybe appointments are harder to get in the evening hours, and so they have to take the child out of school, and they're off work, and then they take them to that appointment. Whereas I have the flexibility to see that child at the school that they might be at, at their home in the evening. I also am okay if siblings are there and are part of our sessions. 
because I think that's a really great opportunity to work on that social support that that child has at home. And so they, maybe they don't need that babysitter during our session. Maybe they don't need that second parent there to watch the children, and that can be a benefit. I also have the ability to transition with children. So I've had students that I see at a certain school, and then maybe they transition to a new school. And I can move with them between schools. I can just I can change and see them at home and then school. And I think that cuts down that cost of starting therapy at a new place, a new facility when you move directions there. What have parents told you about your impact on their children's lives? I've had some really positive feedback from families about this method of providing care. I had one family who was really excited about the differences that they were seeing in their child based on this therapy that we've been doing together. I had one family that let me know that they were really happy to have someone like me working with their child and that they were very excited about the results when their child started to play at home. When I first started working with that family, the primary method of play was holding cars and breaking and throwing sticks. Those were our favorites when we started out. And Our favorites. Our favorites. <laughs> we both had a lot of fun with that when we first started out. Um, and so when I last saw that child, we were playing on the playground together. And that kiddo is now able to play on pretty much any kind of playground equipment. They are starting to learn how to play tag. They can play back and forth board games with their siblings at home. And to see that kind of change, the family has been really excited and enthusiastic about continuing therapy services. It's just really amazing to receive this kind of positive feedback and know that the work you're doing and the method of work that you're doing is having such an impact. That's tremendous. I say it all the time that there doesn't seem to be a one-size-fits-all I think I might reverse that a little bit today and saying that it seems like the real way to make sure that people get the care that they need is to take the time to make it individualized. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. And so you don't just work with these individual students, but you also do some things out in the community too. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to kind of take occupational therapy to a bigger community level. And that's something that is my goal for this year, for 2022, is to really start to expand community-based service. But I've had some unique opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I worked in a clinic. Uh, this past year, I helped to consult on the design of a new playground at a school so that it could target a few skills that they thought that their students could use a little brushing up on. And what better way to do that than through play at a school? And so we designed a playground that could work on balance and crossing midline and working as a team and fine motor skills and big motor skills. When you say we, who was on that team of so designers? It would be me and then the school staff. So kind of the director of the school and then some of the people who would be hands-on in the building of that playground. That seems like a really great opportunity. It was. I was very excited about that. That's something that I'm really passionate about. And it was such a new and exciting opportunity for me. Steve would be really happy about this because in the past he's talked about life being a playground. Um, so, but what, what kinds of, I guess, apparatus or elements are on this playground that you consider to be 
inclusive to help these children with some of their motor development and other forms of development? So this playground, one of the things that they wanted for it was it to be made of more natural materials. So things that they could go around and find and bring to build with as much as possible because it's a Montessori learning environment. It had a lot of different funny things on it. There's a laser maze is what we called it, where there's wooden poles of different sizes with wires running across them that the children would have to duck under and climb over to get through. There was also a racing component, so it was an apparatus that they could run through it and compete with to promote that social interaction. We had a fenced wall section of handprints and footprints that they had to hit in a certain pattern to get to the end. Uh, there was logs to bounce between and hop across, a wooden swing that they could climb on. So just a lot of really kind of fun movement-based activities. It sounds like the kind of playground that I really enjoyed as a kid. Uh, not so much the heavily plasticized ones that we got, you know, later on in our development, but that sounds like a lot of fun and just like a natural playground, a natural setting where it helps the imagination to develop as well as all of the other skills. Yes, I think something we can do for children to support that imagination and that creativity is to have environments where it's something simple that they can take in a lot of directions. A lot of activities I do with my children, I present them with materials and I say, I think we should build a music box. I think we should make a, a new invention, a new something. What do you think we should do? And I pose it as open-ended questions. And if they're stuck, then I can provide modeling of ideas or maybe I'll build something different and let them have the creativity to build something on their own. And we have a a saying in therapy of assuming competence. So even with children who maybe have what we would consider a significant disability, or maybe they learn a lot differently than their peers, but they're good learners still. They still have such creativity in them and that every day they teach me to be more creative. And I'm not sure I could have designed that playground without them first teaching me for a year how to be more creative in my everyday life how to see these materials and these amazing inventions they would come up with and the stories they could tell me about them. Or maybe they would pick it up and show me how they think it's so cool if something can roll through a paper towel tube. And then we have a game and they invented this game and it's new to us in that day. I had one child who I presented the idea of a scavenger hunt for letters. I thought, oh, this will be a new and intriguing way to work on letters, that'll be more motivating. We talk about motivation a lot in therapy. What is motivating and what is important to that child because that's gonna make learning easier. That's gonna make learning more fun. And when we are having fun, sometimes information sticks better, right? Because it's important to us. So with these kids, the scavenger hunt, this little guy told me that we weren't doing a scavenger hunt in the school, we were in a castle. We were going to save somebody at the end of it. And I was like, that's a great idea. What are we going to save? And then we had this big storyline going. And it was such fun that his friends that were nearby joined in. And they thought, oh, this is the best game. And then every time after that, we wanted to do letters. And we wanted to write letters. And suddenly letters were fun. And we were learning. That's a little bit of a segue from the playground. <laughs> well, no, I, I think it's great because... What you just mentioned, starting with these natural things and 
giving birth in the imagination. That's exactly your experience in having your own business and starting from scratch. You get to decide what the proper direction to go is. You get to discover what this child needs and you get to determine using your learning through your degree program, but also this experience that you're gaining, how you can best help that child. So uh, the skills that you're teaching these children are things that you yourself are able to utilize and to me, it really says that these skills are important, not just for learning and figuring things out, but we can also use them throughout the rest of our lives for career, for whatever the situation requires. Yeah, that reminds me of something um, in neuroscience we call divergent thinking. And divergent thinking is very important for creativity. Divergent thinking is when our brain thinks in a new pattern. So creativity takes a lot of different parts of our brain and we use them together. But sometimes when we are in a routine or when there are constructs in place, patterns for us to follow, our brain naturally will follow those patterns and we won't think of a new solution. We'll follow our normal problem-solving pathways. There's normal heuristics and biases that we have. Exactly. So divergent thinking is when our brain forms new pathways. So we're going in a new direction. We're connecting different parts of our brain that maybe haven't been connected. A thought with a memory, with the idea that's in front of us. And suddenly we're being creative and we're coming up with innovative solutions, something brand new. And I think what's interesting about this is that there's uh, a man who's considered the father of behavioral neurology, Dr. Kenneth Heilman. And he has suggested that when we're stressed, it is much harder for us to think in a divergent way, which means it's hard for us to be creative. And so if we think about the traditional work environment, we are often in a stressed mode, right? We're trying to get things done on a deadline. We're trying to meet other people's requirements. There's very systematic methods of doing things in place. And so our brains don't have to be divergent and we're just trying to get things done. But when we pause and we take a moment to be in a state of peaceful mind when we're not feeling fight or flight, when our brains aren't focused on external factors, they're able to look in and connect new pathways. And so they found that when we are in a low stress environment, when we take a pause, when we include work pauses in actual work environments, then we can promote creative thinking. In the model of therapy that I practice, I have a lot less constructs in place. So my brain is automatically having to connect new pathways because there's nothing there yet. Um, and I have a lot more flexibility in my day. So I have times to take breaks. I'm setting my schedule. So there's less pressure on me from maybe a manager or someone higher up. So I'm automatically in a place where my brain can be more creative. And so it makes me wonder how we can support that in a traditional work environment so that we can come to more creative solutions. So what are your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like in order to encourage this, we need to make it easier to think outside of a pattern. So maybe that's instead of offering a pathway that you need your employee to follow, we need to allow learning. Sometimes learning takes longer. Creativity is thought to take longer sometimes, but that's when we really reach innovation. That's when we come to new ideas. And that's what these children kind of teach me is that 
we need to take time for creativity and we need to be creative as adults, which is kind of a novel idea. I feel like by the time we reach high school, we're given rubrics for assignments that we have to follow, right? But what if they were giving you an open-ended assignment? You can express your knowledge in any way that you can, that you want to, and that's going to really give you more variety. And maybe you're going to see some talents emerge that you didn't know were there. You're going to see a new invention, a new performance. And that would be a really amazing way to learn. And it's not necessarily an invalid way to learn. It's just different from what we are currently expecting. And just because it's different than what we're expecting doesn't mean that it's not useful to society. I, I think we often get hung up on the idea of these are the traditional skills for the traditional jobs and you need to practice and perfect those so you can fit in, receive your pay, have your life, and to continue to make the machine run. But it seems like under a model where we have more creativity, people are going to be able to contribute in ways that are totally unforeseen. At the end of season one, we talked about the Japanese concept of something called Ikigai. And what that is is a framework for helping us achieve our purpose and our motivation in life. And one of the components of that was to do things that we actually love. Um, it seems to me like if we hamper creativity, then people don't actually get the chance to understand what they love and how it can be useful to everybody around them. I know me, for instance, whenever I have an idea or a project, I am much more invested in wanting to see that one develop than in trying to just fit in and do what's quote required of me. I have much more sense of purpose and much more excitement when I get to be that creative person. And it sounds to me like you get to live that every day, which is totally remarkable. Yeah, it brings back that, that word of motivation, right? When we're creative, when we are using our mind to its fullest potential, when we feel like we are valued, we are motivated to do our best, right? And I think that that motivation and that success we see from our work when it's creative is, is really special. And helps to build positive momentum, not just for the worker, but also for the people that they're helping. For your kids, having that creative approach, I, I would imagine might seem a little bit slower in the long run, but you can take really great strides when you're building on this creative framework. We can even challenge that perspective that it's gonna take longer because a lot of the kids that I see I would say are making really fast progress. And I think it's because we are following a different pathway and the old pathway was not working for them. A lot of times families seek out our care because the care that they've been receiving is not working. It's not doing anything beneficial and they see us as their creative new pathway. And when we are practicing and we are being creative with the families and we're using them as our team member and I'm a team member and the child is our coach, then we really start to see limits were being set on this family and on this child by outside forces. And it's not that they can't do things, it's that 
the limits were set on them so that they were not able to pass those barriers. We have to ask ourselves a lot, can we do this differently? And why are we doing it this way? Is there a reason? Or is it because we've always done it this way? I had a student who has ADHD and needs to move around a lot. And the school said, they're moving too much. They need to sit still in their chair. And I said, do they need to sit still in their chair? Or is it expected of students right now? But does it need to be? And so we have that student walking around there in the, you know, the back of the classroom and they can move. They can sit on a different type of chair, like a yoga ball. They can bounce as they learn. They can walk back and forth on tape lines that we have back there. And suddenly... This child is writing, they're reading, they're doing all of the lessons they need to do. And why? Because we asked, why is this system like this? Is this really the best way? Do children need to sit in their chairs to learn? And the answer was no. That's interesting because often when I have like my big bright ideas, I'm up and about pacing up and down the hallway. Uh, maybe I'm even listening to music and dancing along or playing air guitar. But all the while my brain is working and it's working at such a high level in that moment. So I find that really fascinating. And I mean, look at workplaces, we're starting to add treadmill desks, standing desks, but a lot of our students are still sitting. And if you look at a child and you look at an adult who has more energy typically, right? So we need to look at classrooms in a new way at a broad level, not just at an individual child level. A child doesn't need ADHD to need to move. And so I think that's a place for us to really put those creative thinking hats on and challenge that tradition. Do you think that there might be a fear of the creative because the results can be so unexpected? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think sometimes we fear creativity because it is not our norm. It's not what we know. And sometimes the unknown is scary. We have to let there be room for failure with creativity as well. Because sometimes when you're creative, our first idea isn't going to work but we learn so much from failure, right? And I think, we know this as children, right? That's why we're allowed to be creative when we're young. And as we get older, there's less room for failure. We're allowed to fail less. And you know, you fail a paper in high school, you fail a paper in college, you fail a paper in grad school, suddenly your consequences are escalating. There's less room for error. But I think when we fail and when we learn how we failed, we learn more than if we succeeded the first time. And that's what creativity is. It's trying a lot of different new pathways and seeing what is going to work the best, what's going to allow us to grow, what's going to be innovative. So you're in a position where starting your own business and having that blank slate, you're able to be creative all the time. Um, but maybe for some of our listeners who don't have that kind of workplace environment, how can they start building creativity in their lives so that they can experience the benefits? I think that's a great question. In a lot of environments, I think one of the biggest things that we can do is challenge existing structures. We need to look at how we're doing things and question it. Is this the best way to do this or is this the easiest way? Is this the most comfortable way? And if we can think creatively about how to do those differently, then you can propose those ideas to your team. And then you can start adopting new ways to do things. And maybe that's going to really allow your company to be more innovative, more motivated. Another thing I think we can do is allow more time for pauses. We need to create work environments that are less stressful. 
because as we talked about, when we're stressed, our brain is focused on those external factors and it's harder for us to look inside and make new connections. So we need time to pause. We need more holistic workplace environments. I think another thing we can do is provide more opportunities where people can grow because when we grow, that's when we can be really creative, right? When we're motivated to get to new areas. I think another word that we can bring back right now is assuming competence. That's a word that's used a lot in therapy. And I think we can use it a lot in the workplace too. I think if you're in a, a role where you are supervising others, you can assume competence. You can assume that the people you are working with can do things, that they maybe don't need as much structure as you're providing them with, that it can be available if needed, but otherwise try less structure and see what they can come up with without you offering a detailed rubric as it would be a little bit different in a workplace environment than a school. But when we are providing that open flexibility time for thinking, brainstorming sessions, time and places for ideas and suggestions for changes, because a lot of work environments don't have a time for discussion of change, right? You maybe have a team meeting where you discuss what you're going to do that week, what's going to happen tomorrow, what this schedule looks like, but you don't have an opportunity to talk about what needs to change, what could change, what could be better. How could you gain more knowledge to put to use in creative problem solving? And I think that leads to another point of knowledge. Education is key, right? How are we having opportunities for learning in our workplace environment? How are we learning more about what we can do? And then when we have that knowledge, we can use that to put into practice new evidence. We can make sure our practice is evidence-based. We can create new systems. We can study how effective that is. We can share that with others. That brings up a really good point because a lot of people tell me that their workplace environment is based off of production. Being productive and trying to do the most that they can do with the least effort or the least amount of staff is the name of the game in a lot of places. But that cuts out all of the creative potential when we're so stressed and high strung that we need to rely on those systems that are already in place and don't have time to question, don't have time to think outside the box and do an analysis and see what's better. So it sounds like essentially you're advocating for us to maybe decrease some of those expectations and use that additional time, that additional energy on real creative thinking in the workplace. Yes, and there is a study out of the Harvard Business School that shows that when we are more creative, we're going to see a higher revenue in our businesses. So I think businesses are like, oh, if we allow time for creativity, that's going to take away from productivity. But research shows that we're going to see a gain in revenue, which means that it's not really about productivity. It was about innovation, right? When you create a product, when you create a service that is needed, wanted, valuable, makes people feel valued, then you're going to be worth more, right? And I think that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of places that are very used to what they're doing. They have a routine set and it's hard to get out of that. But we need to challenge ourselves to be new, to be different. 
I also think that companies assume creativity takes a lot of time. Therapists assume that as well. But oftentimes when I'm creative, as I've grown my creative thinking skills, they become easier. And now when I go into a session, sometimes I can just pull materials from the environment and we can work on any skill. That child can show me how they want to learn and we just roll with it. That takes a lot less prep time than maybe an intervention where I have materials ready to go, worksheets to go through, a system to follow. I have books that I've read on it. Maybe I have done education, of course, but when I go in there with nothing and I let the child show me what to do in that environment, suddenly that's easier for me. They're more motivated to learn and I'm seeing them succeed. And I feel that that would translate really well to a work environment too. Once we learn how to be creative thinkers, that process is going to become more intuitive. And we're going to see workplaces becoming more innovative more quickly because they're supporting that. And suddenly it's second nature to problem solve, second nature to think of new pathways in our brain, second nature not to come up with one answer, but 10 and try them and see which one's best. Well, I'm all on board for that. So that begs the question, are you at some point interested in bringing more people on board to kind of facilitate your vision? I think that's an interesting question. Right now I'm an independent contractor, but if I wanted to own a private practice and have therapists that contracted with me, it would be a whole new set of paperwork. So I think it's going to take me a little while before I feel confident and comfortable to do that. But it is right now one of those long-term dreams. And as my last dream showed me that maybe it's going to be pretty reachable if I put the work in. So maybe one day I think that would be a really unique and cool opportunity. Well, I'm looking forward to see where things go. And I think it would be great to check back in with you and see what kind of progress you're making. I'd love to be back. Thank you. Well, I think it's just about time to wrap things up. I think you mentioned that you wanted to try to get some sledding in before it got too dark. Yes, as my work has shown me, you're never too old to play. <laughs> well, it sounds like a good time. So Michaela, if people are curious or interested in having you work with their children, what's the best way that they can get in contact with you? They can reach me at my email, Michaela, M-I-K-A-Y-L-A, at newballoonkc.com. Really appreciate you taking the time with us today and, and again for uh, hosting me so we can have this discussion. And I'm sure Einstein would be very pleased to hear that more people are beginning to take creativity very seriously. So don't forget, listeners, we're going to be having our first Ideas to Inspire book club next week when we talk about Start With Why by Simon Sinek. If you haven't had a chance to read along with us, go ahead and check out Simon's TED Talk, How Great Leaders Inspire Action. It's the third most popular talk in the series, so you should be able to find it no problem. For more Doorward Thinking content from our whole team, check out our blog at doorward.com slash doorwardthinking. We're starting with weekly posts, and we will be updating even more frequently soon. For the latest news about the show and Doorward, as well as some special surprises, be sure to follow Doorward on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. To make sure that you don't miss out on our next episode, subscribe to Doorward Thinking on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify today. Till next time, I'm your host, Nate LeBlanc, reminding you to follow the creativity of your inner child and to get back to living.